Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I think today's hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee might be like one of the randiest hearings I've heard in a while. Ooh, do tell. Body. Body hearing. Senator Ben Sass uh, asked Jim Comey, um, there's room for reasonable people to disagree about at what point an allegedly journalistic organization crosses a line to become a tool for foreign intelligence. There are Americans, well-meaning, thoughtful people who think WikiLeaks might be a journalistic outfit. Can you explain why that is not your view? And before saying, after saying <clears throat> he wants to be careful not to prejudice any future proceedings that I can or cannot confirm, Comey says, To my mind, it crosses a line when it moves from being about trying to educate a public, and instead it becomes intelligence porn, frankly, just pushing out information about sources and methods without regard to interest, without regard to the First Amendment values. Yeah. For, the, for the record, just, he just yeah, he, pushing them. Just pushing that porn out. <laughs> Intel porn. Take your secrets. Give them all to me. For, for the record, Comey's <laughs> diction was much more like. <laughs> okay, level. he may not have been as spicy as I was. I love the term intelligence porn. I like it multiple times. I love that the FBI director loves it too. <laughs> I I like it. I I like the describing the voyeurism, especially to Congress, who are the worst in voyeuristically looking at intelligence that they don't. Okay, mean. so I, intelligence I porn creators and consumers. So. But there's like the the reality show intelligence porn, which is WikiLeaks, and then there's like the Hollywood intelligence porn that's like Oliver Stone, right? Yeah. Well, I, I think, think the it... real question is: Is intelligence porn feminist? Oh, oh. that conversation. <laughs> 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 Let me just say that the attractiveness level of this hypothetical intelligence porn might be disappointing to yeah. the audience. Hot, hot code words. Hot, hot, in a basement, windowless, and hot, hot, hot cables. In a hot, hot skip. A lot of pasty skin and... <laughs> okay, uh, we can stop now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the intelligence porn edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal, here to talk dirty to you about polo step <laughs> you're breathing a little heavy there polo Shane. Step? <laughs> isn't i read that in the code word book once i'm gonna give you some top secret documents <laughs> this is good you clearly thought through this like i'm wearing lot, nothing Shane. but a burn bag <laughs> what's, what's even better about this is that shane is sitting in ben's chair i am sitting in ben's chair I know. I feel like the king of the jungle studio. Uh, Does this no, mean what? I have to pour my own scotch? Yes. That's not I'm happening. I'm afraid it does. Not happening. I'm here in, in Ben's chair. Ben's away. Ben's moderating some dumb book or something. And Books. when Ben's away. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. We talk about porn. <laughs> I'm here with Tamara Coffin, Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Quinta Jurassic. Hi, everybody. Hi, hey, Shane. Hello. Um, I don't think Ben's book, whatever he's moderating about, is nearly as exciting as the show we have for you today. FBI Director James Comey, you know him, Dirty Jim. 
Christmas but it all just stopped. I, I, this may become a theme, just so you know. This may be the NC-17 edition. It'll be like the new, like, the Joe Biden thing that the Onion did. It was just, like, dirtbag. We'll do, like, secretly dirty Jim Comey. <laughs> I would pay good, good money to see that. FBI Director Jim Comey says he was somewhat nauseated by the idea he could have swayed the presidential election. President Trump is reaching out to autocrats and adversaries. Is his strategy paying off? And the NSA reins in some of its surveillance operations. Um, so let's start with Comey. Comey testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee, obviously, as we've said. And when he wasn't talking about WikiLeaks uh, and gratuitous display of secrets, um, the question came up of whether uh, sort of what was his state of mind when he, as we have talked about many times, uh, revealed to the House Oversight Committee, which then was promptly leaked, uh, that the FBI was looking again at Hillary Clinton's emails and the ones that were found on Huma and Anthony's laptop. And, you know, we don't have to relitigate all that. Um, but said the idea that he had, might have swayed the election left him feeling uh, somewhat nauseated. So not, not flustered, not breathing nauseated. heavily, but <laughs> nauseated. Right, right. I saw an election night, he's like, whoop. Uh, <laughs> No, to be fair, running. many of us felt the same way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe for different reasons than the FBI director. Maybe not. Um, what did we learn from this hearing? I think. I mean, obviously, I think it was. It was very. It was. I think interesting, and perhaps maybe even for some people, it was cathartic to watch Comey up there talking about what he felt about this sort of decision that was, you know, he had two horrible choices, as he put it. He could either stay quiet and be accused later of covering for Hillary. I think it probably he thought Hillary was going to win, or he could, you know, uh, take the risk of swaying the election or affecting it by speaking out about what the FBI was doing. I mean, did you guys walk away from this feeling that any part of the narrative has really changed here all that much? I don't think we learned anything new. I think... He got a, a fuller opportunity to explain his thinking and the calculation that he went through. And he made an argument that was basically a balance of harm argument and that he, he was concerned about the institution of the FBI and the Justice Department and the integrity of the political campaign. But that latter was damaged either way. And it was a question of how to minimize damage to faith in in this institution. So, you know, good to hear, I'm, but I'm not sure it changed anything from, from most listeners. Um, I also think, you know, it was an opportunity for him because in the weeks since he last testified, some former officials have spoken out more about this. So Lisa Monaco, for example, was um, quoted saying publicly, not uh, criticizing Comey per se, but saying, well, the Justice Department has these procedures for a reason and they're there for the tough cases, not for the easy ones. And it's important to follow them, which is an implicit criticism. That's so her old boss she's talking about. Too. Right. So it was a chance for him to sort of talk back to those critiques. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, I don't think it changed anybody's minds in part because like everyone is so hardened at this point into their understanding of the narrative and sort of particular um, uh, how they view Comey in general. Um, I thought sort of he was uh, remarkably sort of impassioned and emotional in a way about really wanting to say like, 
I took this decision seriously. Of course, we thought about the consequences. Like I had two bad choices in front of me and I made the less bad choice. And then I, I acted with what I knew at the time. And, you know, and and yeah, I, I sort of I get what a big deal it was. But like, I can't I did I did the best I could. Um, and so I, I thought he was uh, he uh, demonstrated that, you know, look, he whether or not you agree that he made the right decision, um, that ultimately, you know, he acted in good faith. He took this, you know, this seriously. And the notion that he was like in the tank for Trump was, is sort of absurd. You know, that said, I, I thought that beforehand. Um, and whenever I look at sort of other people's reaction of the, the rank hypocrisy of Jim Comey and, you know, this, this, you know, duplicitous, mendacious liar out there, they're like, right, that, that was the response to from, from sort of that, uh, wing of, of Twitter. So it's, I, I think that, um, I, I don't know that people, anybody really watched that and thought, oh, yeah, I was really suspicious of him. But now, like, I, I sort of see his frankness and candor. I, interestingly, Diane Feinstein, actually, in the course of questioning, it, she clearly um, had sort of a change in questioning tact, because I thought she really sort of backed off um, uh, what had been previously a, a really rather direct and aggressive line of questioning. Um, that said, no, one thing that I think is um, remarkable here is that, you know, Comey, uh, whenever I look at the decision, um, I completely uh, buy the notion that they were examining um, you know, two bad options and, and these were the choices in front of them. Um, my critique or objection is that they were making those choices with the assumption that Clinton would win. Um, and so they made risk averse choices or choices that they thought would sort of preserve their legacy or sort of make them look good and be the most defensible. Well, they, they discounted the risk because they thought she was likely to win. But you can say the same thing about the Obama administration as a whole, not only Jim Comey. So this is this is exactly my point that they like he he sort of left uh, holding the bag here for this decision. But in fact, it was that exact decision that characterized almost all of the Obama administration's conduct, certainly sort of moving up into September and October of not uh, you know, getting involved here. Or um, not making a bigger deal about the Russian interference. Well, which, a, which it, Comey made clear, right, during the hearing. I mean, he had this long sort of speech about the conduct of Attorney General Loretta Lynch and how he felt that she had boxed him into a corner there and that he he ultimately felt that he needed to come forward not only in October, but also in July in in his initial press conference to reassure the American people about the credibility of their institutions, which is sort of an astonishing statement right. um, for him to make. I mean, and he did preface this by saying, Loretta Lynch, who I like very much. Um, nice but lady. so he's... Yeah, I'm, he not, very I'm much... not sure he sold that <laughs> that particular argument about why he felt compelled in July to take the step that created the path dependency that led to the right. the letter 10 days before <clears throat> the election. I mean, what I what I was really struck by is... As Susan said, he, he was really animated and defending himself. I mean, he's quite passionate, yeah. um, and sort of explaining his, his thinking on this, in this sort of, you know, the two doors and you have to pick one, which reminds me, I was thinking of like the lady and the tiger or something like that, except I suppose you have two tigers or tiger yeah. and a bear or something like right, that. Right, tiger and a bear. The Russian bear. <laughs> Is it cozy bear? Which cozy or Who fancy? Knows? <laughs> they both have a gun. <laughs> but but that he That's a really extended 
<laughs> but he he said multiple times that he that it was a painful decision and he he described it as creating nausea in him like he was really taking pains to yeah underline the before, right the too, extent yeah. to which this was a like in the sense of the nausea literally visceral right. well, decision just- that he feels very very deeply which made me think let me, i'll say of you know as we know he's a fan of reinhold niebuhr right like the the sort of niebuhrian sense of that we're all you know fallen actors in a tragic world and you have to make tough decisions i think that was very very much See, on display i don't get that at all from him i get more um uh, like, and, and I think this is part of the critique of him, the, the more sort of, um, uh, you know, the, the Boy Scouts, like, you know, I'm gonna, uh, uh, the presentation of sort of, you know, always the, the upright and righteous and just decision. And, uh, that I think one of the things that sort of, is a, at least somewhat fair criticism is, yeah, you know, you say that you're making the right choice. Um, there is a distinction between um, examining what is like purely what is the right choice and also how that choice will be viewed as to like in, in through the lens of history, right? That there's something sort of mm-hmm. a self-referential or overly conscious about yeah, like this, this sort of Greek tragedy kind of thing. Yeah, I also feel like at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before, an election that was decided on, you know, 1% um, or maybe on 80,000 votes in particular precincts is so it, it, it can be explained by everything. And therefore, you can't say that any one explanation is determinative. And so the the sort of torturing Jim Comey over whether he determined the outcome of the election is a is a futile game. But at the same time, his uh, public kind of expiation of oh I was so tortured and yeah, that's these choices exactly were awful. I don't think that makes anyone feel better well, about the inevitable impact, even if it wasn't determinative. And probably not Hillary Clinton, who should point out the day before this hearing came out and said, if not for Jim Comey and WikiLeaks, I would be your president, yeah, or at least it- if it or if the election was held on October twenty seventh. I mean, she's probably sitting there. And, you know, just rolling her eyes or screaming at the television well, watching this I, testimony, actually, right? I, I, I think that there's been a little, I mean, understandable media focus on that dimension of her remarks. But I thought she actually did a pretty forthright job of taking personal responsibility she, she for said the loss, for the way the campaign was right, conducted, right. for where they did and didn't campaign in those last weeks. But in addition to that. You know, the polls on October 27th said one thing and the outcome on election day said something. And yeah. Jim Comey did not stop her from campaigning in Michigan. Right. Exactly. Look, in, in a close race, there can be multiple but for factors, right? Like, but for her not ignoring, you know, Michigan and, and Wisconsin. Uh, right. It's just overdetermined. Right. There, there's there's lots and lots of stuff. Is Comey the um, the last f- uh, factor? Potentially, yes. Um, and, and so this sort of this obsession on what was the thing? Well, it was probably multiple things. Um, uh, the press coverage, certainly. The polls themselves, right? So it, it's not that, like, uh, the state of the world was one day, one way, and 11 days later it was dramatically different. Right. That might have been true, but also it was clear that we just thought the state of the world was one day, 11 right. days before, right. because that's what the polls were telling us. Had the polls told people, hey, this is a neck-and-neck race – 
that would have had different voter turnout rates. People would have made different choices about third party candidates. Like there's just there's so much here that Jim this, Comey might not have done what he did. Right. Exactly. This sort of this desire to to get back out there and find the one thing. It's like, wait, look, guys, it's it's done. Like we need to move forward. If anything, and this is not specific to sort of the Comey responsibility, but just the general questioning about Russia and and where we are in general. We could have had this exact hearing two months ago. This is an incredibly important issue. It should it should be occupying huge amounts of congressional time and attention. And yet somehow we have not really progressed in what we're focused on or thinking about. We're still talking about what Jim Comey did before the election. Well, and we're still talking about what shaped the election outcome. We're not talking about what that Russian campaign was like and how it was structured and what it means for now. And and that, I think, goes both to the differing political agendas that are embedded in these investigatory efforts in Congress um, and in the kind of broader polarized environment. But it also goes to this sort of obsession that that we have and that our political reporters have with the horse race. We love campaigns. We, You know, the media loves campaigns because they cover them like a horse race. Everybody loves reality show competitions. And we just can't let this one go. And so, you know, now it's not Trump v. Clinton anymore. Now it's Comey v. Clinton. But we can keep talking about this forever because we'll never actually know the answer. Although it should also be said, I mean, the, the horse race aspect and the sort of like always going back to the same thing. Donald Trump is also contributing okay. to that because <laughs> let point. us not forget last night he tweeted FBI director Comey was the best thing that ever happened to Hillary Clinton in that he gave her a free pass for many bad deeds the phony dot 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 and then 15 minutes later dot 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 Trump Russia story was just an excuse used by the Democrats as justification for us- for losing the election perhaps Trump just ran a great campaign is, it, is there a possibility that you know, that me- well, we've talked so many times about the extraordinary nature of some of these tweets, but that also gets very close to the line, it seems to me, about a president weighing in on his FBI director who is currently oh, leading an yes. investigation on that subject. I mean, in in a world in which at some point in the future he tries to some, – some finding comes out or he tries to remove Comey, I mean, to what extent can those tweets kind of be held Funny against you should him ask, later? Shane. Look, in terms of actually limiting his ability to remove the FBI director, I don't think that creates a legal bar. I I think it's just he's adding to – I I think Donald Trump still does not um, fully understand the extent to which he is breaching really important institutional norms. I think that he has not been held accountable um, by Congress or even really the courts, um, although they they've certainly exerted them, um, you know, shown a little more muscle in uh, in the immigration executive orders decisions. Um, and and but I think he's failing to recognize that there is a tipping point in in how much he's able to. Uh, really, really violate those standards of independence, weigh in on the FBI director without there being significant consequences. So I sort of view it as like he's putting more and more like straws or toothpicks on something and like eventually. Well, but that I mean, that's of a piece with a lot of this presidency when it comes to kind of normative erosion. I I think it's just another demonstration that for Trump and for his White House, it's narrative uber alles. And he keeps doing these things and putting out these tweets because it's more important to them to define the narrative than it is to 
you know, care about norms or the integrity of any act of government. All right. So speaking of President Trump, <clears throat> uh, President Trump and President Xi Jinping of China, besties. Now besties got to know each other yep. very well. The chocolate cake, which chocolate both cake. of them love chocolate cake. Right. So President Trump and uh, President <clears throat> CC in Egypt, tight, bros. Uh, President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un, open to a meeting. He would be honored. He's a smart cookie, according He's to the Trump. He's a smart cookie. And yeah, you know, I mean, he just didn't like have rise it easy to power either. that way. You know, no, he, he did, did not, not have it easy, it easy growing up as easy the son up. of a dictator who was going to inherit the dictatorship. That's rough. Right. I mean, those those anti-aircraft guns are hard to maneuver. Wait, wasn't the brother first in line? I'm not like... Yeah, he was first in line, yeah, I yeah. think. There was somebody else. I, <clears throat> he may have been blown up by an artillery cannon and mm-hmm. fed to alligators or something like that. It's not easy to ensure that you are, in fact, the next in the line of succession. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> a lot of people you got to kill. You kill a lot or of just one. Uh, yeah, exactly. The big one. Um, so the president has made this, it's, it's become a pretty clear pattern I mean, of reaching out to adversaries, autocratic regimes, government sort of being open. Um, obviously, his detractors have said, uh, have had a lot to say about this, and is the idea that we're somehow putting Kim Jong-un on the same level as other leaders that we would deign to meet with as the United States versus, or is it just being a very flexible, uh, transactional president who's willing to renegotiate our alliances and our uh, relationships with people and he's open to all conversations? I mean, this is, on the one hand, this is probably not that surprising, right, tomorrow that he would be saying something like, yes, I might be willing to meet with uh, Kim Jong-un, and I'd love it if uh, Rodrigo Duterte would come to the White House. Um, <clears throat> what's the? What's your read on, is there a strategy here, or is this more imp- just kind of impulse, uh, flying by the seat of his pants? And what are the actual, like the real world policy implications of this, separate from sort of whatever worldview Trump might have? Right. So, I look, I don't think that there's necessarily a planned strategy, although I do think th- – I, I think you're right to say that this is a president who has a very transactional approach to international relationships in general, therefore is willing to look past linkages between issues. So, for example, the argument that in many other administrations has been hashed out that, well, if we overlook his domestic abuses today, he may be a good partner today but he'll be overthrown tomorrow and that's bad for us. Those sorts of short-term, long-term arguments about the linkage between domestic abuses and stability or or reliability aren't going to wash with a guy who is short-term and transactional in nature. But I do think there's um, there's a lot of conversation about these contacts um, that's about values versus interests. And in fact, Secretary of State Tillerson speaking to the State Department earlier today made a really big point about saying we have to distinguish between our policies and our values. Our policies are linked to our national security and our economic interests, but our values are always our values. They're not going to change, but our policies have to be connected to our interests. In other words, this values-interest dichotomy is very, very real, and we're always going to come down on the side of interests. So that's, you know, that's a, a good realist tradition in American foreign policy. Um, and you can make arguments for that. You could say, well, cozying up to Xi seems to be getting more out of him on North Korea than perhaps confrontation with the Chinese might have done. Um, 
you know, that it, it looks like she called Duterte in the Philippines the other day to talk to him about regional security, including North Korea. You could argue that cozying up to Sisi won the release of this Egyptian-American uh, woman who had been in jail without trial for three years. So there is a realist argument to make that engagement makes does better for you in the long run than confrontation. But I actually think that what we see from Trump goes well beyond mere engagement on behalf of American interests. When you have a president, and presidents don't normally call foreign leaders to congratulate them on domestic referenda. <laughs> uh, when you have a president who calls right away Erdogan to congratulate him on a referendum that um, centralizes power under him and allows him to continue running for office, or not just calling Duterte, because he was making a round of calls of Asian leaders, but calling him and inviting him to the White House without checking with anybody in his staff or coordinating with anybody. You know, this is a kind of um, going beyond mere engagement. It, it seems to be a sort of love affair with strongmen, the way he talks about Putin, the way he talks about Sisi. Because um, it's not like he talks about Merkel this way. No, no, <laughs> to the contrary. He called Putin the same day that Merkel was in Moscow, standing side by side with Putin at a podium and criticizing Putin for his crackdown on gays and lesbians in Chechnya. So it's really, you know, there's a really, really strong contrast, not just between how Trump treats Democratic partners and autocratic partners, but how Democratic partners treat those autocrats and how Trump treats them. And I, so I do think there's something here that goes beyond any policy argument you can make. It's temperamental. Uh, and when you and it goes together, I think, with the frustrations he expresses about those stupid congressional rules like, you know, needing cloture um, or those, you know, frustratingly independent judges who keep blocking his actions. He is jealous of the guys who have absolute power. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And it's interesting that he um, uh, writes so closely after uh, the vote in Turkey. He starts focusing on all these dang rules that prevent him from just enacting policy. And it's a really bad situation for the United States. It's um, it's a, a lack of respect for process and sort of a desire to expand well, his own personal uh power or sort of ability to maneuver or even a lack of understanding of the fact that the the system of which he is the chief executive is a system of divided authority right. <laughs> like it's just a fact <laughs> it almost feels like he's sort of calling members of like what he perceives as members of his fellow club right i mean it's like we're all in the world leaders club and so therefore i'm willing to talk to anyone well so the interesting thing is why why is it useful to have a guy like <clears throat> Duterte in the World Leaders Club? What does right. Duterte get Duterte, to? Duterte, who after the invitation was extended, said basically, thanks, but no thanks, I'm busy. <laughs> I'm washing my right. hair that right. day. So he snubbed him, <laughs> which was kind of like, oh, touche, sir. The strange thing as well is sort of the, the, um, the justification after the fact. So just like the tweets where he sort of lobs something, you know, he, he, he extends this invitation and then everyone has to sort of come up with an explanation. And the White House's explanations here were really really pretty strange that they needed the Philippines in order to help with North Korea. Yeah, regional security, as Brian said, we need all the partners we can get. It's like, but you don't really need the Philippines it's in just, that way. So it's this right? very sort of strange, I, I don't know if it's just grasping for sort of anything, um, to try and explain what exactly is going on here. But it's a, it's a very 
uh, strange and at this point unifying feature of sort of how he it's, views the world. It's true. It, there's a lot of inconsistency in foreign policy in this administration. This is a consistent theme. I would say, though, that, you know, the history of American foreign policy and engaging with these autocrats, you know, often they can be good partners. They can help with specific security interests. They can vote with us in the UN. Um, but there is one consistency that we see, which is that even as they do that, they uh, can often be very anti-American in their domestic rhetoric. They blame us for the cooperation that they provide to us. And uh, and I think Duterte's snubbing of Trump is a perfect example of that. So if Trump is hoping that he's going to get adulation from these guys as a result of uh, ignoring all their domestic foibles, history suggests that he will be disappointed. Well, yeah, what, to to well, Shane's point about sort of the, the same club, it reminds me of something that um, the former deputy director of NSA used to talk about, which was um, like, what is the purpose of power and whether or not it's to rule or to serve? And that this, you know, that that American power and American politics where it's about power for the purpose of service. Um, and so I do think that that's, you, Shane, you're like onto something and that there's this club of people, their understanding of the purpose of power is to rule. And Trump is pretty clearly in in that club well wait so what i find interesting is that i think to susan's point about the sort of post hoc rationalization of like this is the reason why we're doing this that you actually in a weird way have seen over the past few days a kind of similar rationalization from the left which is not something that i would have expected but there's this sort of sent there's this argument that well, so now Trump is, he's, you know, that democracy stuff, eh, take it or leave it. Values, interests will go with the interests. But that the, the sort of counter argument is, oh, you know, the United States has always just pursued its interests and it's always been, you know, we've always supported dictators and is this anything really different? And so to which the response I would say is yes, that if you talk the talk, what, like that actually does make a difference that you're not, you know, you can work with Turkey, but congratulating Erdogan on a referendum in which he gains authoritarian power. Like, that's a very different thing. And so from Trump's side, there's so, the White House is making these arguments that the sort of, well, as a matter of calculation, it all makes sense. And there are folks on the left who are saying, well, it was all a matter of calculation anyway. And this has just ripped off the mask. And therefore, it doesn't really matter that yeah. this has changed. And I, the, the mask is actually important. Well, I would say, number one, as you said, it's not just a mask. And the United States, not mere rhetoric, but action on human rights and democracy abroad has made a concrete difference in the world. And its absence is making a concrete difference. Um, and you can talk to activists in countries all over the world who will tell you that they already have evidence that the silence from Washington is making their lives harder. But I think that there's another difference, which is, you know, which was really revealed by Tillerson's rhetoric in his State Department speech today, um, about which I will, I will try to write something very soon. He kept talking about our values, that, you know, we can't expect other countries to adopt our values. And this is what's really shockingly different between this administration and, and every modern administration that came before it. These are value, and it, not only American administrations, these aren't just our values. These are values embedded in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Universal Declaration. This is an international framework. These countries 
Egypt, for example, is a signatory to these treaties. These are international obligations these governments have taken on. And the notion that we're all of a sudden saying these aren't universal human rights that accrue to people because they are human beings. These are just our values. You you might have other values. It's kind of this moral re- suddenly he's a moral <laughs> Democracy, relativist. Democracy, <laughs> well, so speech, This whatever. is the thing, though, is that like Donald Trump has is like on the one hand this sort of weird backward apotheosis of like the american right in the 20th century like frankenstein into existence but he's also the embodiment of this like total relativism which for all of the 20th century the american right was complaining about and saying that you know like foucault would lead to stalinism or that kind of thing (laughs) and at the same time you say oh you know like values eh, truth Eh, does it exist? Does it not exist? Right. I mean, don't we kill journalists too? Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, but I there's think this convergence. Goes, but look, look. I think there's a, there's a distinction between sort of the whataboutism that is has always been a feature of the left versus um, what we're seeing here, which is uh, yeah. Look, America has always um, been willing to have a whole journo's relationship with some unseemly characters in order to advance American interests. Um, though we had a different definition of what American interests were, and so whenever you were making the trade off. Or were you going to have this relationship with, with you know, um, uh, less than democratic leaders or human rights abusers? It was in order to achieve a goal that comported with democratic values and 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 the positive elements of, of Western influence and of American influence. And so now, whenever we talk about, you know, well, we always just pursued our interests. Well, but what? Like, I know I keep coming back to this point of like. How does this help the United States of America? It just, it's, they have not offered any kind of explanation for how cozying up to Duterte, Erdogan, how it benefits anybody other than the Trump hotels. Well, we're gonna, we're gonna get better deals. We're gonna get better trade deals and better security cooperation. That's their argument. And we'll see what the results are. But I think the, the other um, point perhaps to leave on the table here is that in addition to the incongruence of these left arguments on the left is the incongruence of the arguments that are made on the right that this administration is somehow an heir to Reaganite uh, policy approaches because there is nothing that is a deeper betrayal of uh, Reagan's approach to world affairs than this relativism. Um, Reagan believed that these were American values, but he believed that these were the right values for the world and that America was a shining city on a hill. Uh, and uh, and yes, he, he did work with dictators, but he also, by the end of his administration, had come to a point where he saw the advancement of these values as useful in our fight against the Soviet Union, uh, and a useful way to constrain uh, other governments from doing things we didn't want them to do. And he um, went to the point of, you know, gently nudging aside more than one uh, major American autocratic partner. Yeah. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on to our last topic. Uh, the NSA. You remember them. Remember the NSA? We used, talk, we used to talk so them. much about the NSA on this oh, show. Oh, right. They they have all the intelligence porn. Yeah. Big building, terrible They're, parking, that's intelligence right. porn. NSA is like Pornhub for Intel porn. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they have the best. They this have is the, really NC-17. The most the rawest intelligence. <laughs> the most unfiltered. 
There are so many puns that could be made, and I'm yeah. not going to make any of them. Sure. They make them all the time out there, right, Susan? Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, so the New York Times reported uh, <clears throat> recently that the NSA has ended a particular type of collection of overseas information, which communications that mentioned uh, a particular terrorist's uh, identity or had an email address of that person. Uh, communications that were about a particular target of surveillance as opposed to communications to or from that target were being intercepted. And this was a quite controversial practice. And what was known as the Upstream Collection Program, uh, New York Times reported and the NSA said in a statement that they had suspended that about portion. There was also a Times story today also by Charlie Savage who wrote this other one we're talking about noting that <clears throat> the NSA was actually bringing in a lot less uh, uh, <clears throat> in the way of phone records now post the amendments of the 215 program, I think, if I have that right. But particularly on this, on, on this about collection uh, part, and, and Quint, I want to ask you to lead off on this because Lawfare, Bobby Chesney did a piece uh, touching on this. There was a PCLOB report, <clears throat> the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board from 2014, that Essentially 2016, ma- actually. 2016, sorry. They made the, well, no, so it's a 2014 report, 2014, and then it's updated in 2016. Updated in okay. 2016. That made the point that, in their view, it wasn't technologically possible to separate this about collection portion from upstream in general, which also collects information to and from particular targets. And it's not clear from NSA's statement whether or not that means that the NSA has ended the about portion or has ended the entire upstream collection program, which would be an even bigger deal. And Bobby addresses this in, in the piece. And Quinta, maybe you want to uh, take this on because I think it's just, this, is, this raises the tantalizing question of whether or not uh, the suspension of these activities is actually a lot bigger uh, than NSA is acknowledging in the Times is reporting. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so NSA released two statements on the matter that sort of <clears throat> completely failed to clarify anything, basically. I mean, uh, one of the statements reads, NSA previously reported that because of the limits of its current technology, it is unable to completely eliminate about communications from its upstream 702 collection without also excluding some of the relevant communications directly to or from its foreign intelligence targets. That limitation remains even today. So, and then it, there's some other uh, statements on this sort of unassimilar point, which suggests, as Bobby Chesney wrote, that the limitations identified by the P Club are still in place, that there hasn't been a workaround that's been put into use. So, that really does suggest that whatever it is that's happening, the the sort of the problem that the PCLOB identified is still very much at play here. And so perhaps eliminating about collection under 702 has also eliminated a substantial amount of two from collection. Yeah, so look, I, I, there's, um, and I'll like, you know, obviously we'll be careful in how I sort of discuss this, but um, I, I think it's, uh, there's a reason why people have to really carefully parse all these various statements, because if you put them all together, there are still substantial sort of um outstanding questions about the current state of the program. Um, the thing that I think is actually really relevant in NSA's statement um, is that uh, where it says, even though NSA does not have the ability at this time to stop collecting about information without losing some other important data, um, and the uh, topic that Shane and Quinta are talking about is the how large uh, that sum, how large the amount of data that sum is referring to. And without losing some important data, the agency will stop the practice to reduce the chance that it would acquire communications of a U.S. person, or rather not uh, not in direct contact uh, to or from a foreign intelligence target. Um, so this is uh, their way of sort of re- restating uh, the 
PCLOB report uh, uh, issue, which is that um, you can't eliminate for technological reasons um, uh, particular forms of uh, about collection without also losing to from collection, um, which is you know, sort of clearly legitimate within the rules and, and a rel relatively important form of collection with some um, significant counterterrorism consequences. So this has been really... Um, this is a pretty surprising announcement. Um, so the issue has been well known and sort of the debate has been well known by people sort of in and around the intelligence community for a while. So it, I, I, it's not out of left field. Um, that said, it, it, it's surprising that they've reached this decision. Um, the uh, as, sort of as Charlie Savage reports um, that there was uh, this sort of outstanding question that uh, that PCLOB had raised about whether or not there was a way to sort of to eliminate or reduce about collection without uh, eliminating to from uh, the tech the technology wasn't available the sort of risk calculus at that time was no then there were um, uh, compliance issues that were reported in 2011 uh, uh, regarding sort of the querying of this this uh, collection uh, a compromise was reached with the courts in terms of how what the guidelines and procedures were going to be for the treatment of that information um, now it's it's come to light that there were inadvertent violations of uh, of those rules right so the rules they'd put in place to sort of try and reach a compromise that basically hadn't solved the issue that they were uh, attempting to solve and so there was a there was a new assessment saying well what would we need to do in order to resolve the the courts uh, issues here um, to be cut to come into compliance and to be uh, certain that we are in compliance at all times. And is it worth it to make those changes? Um, or is it better to just stop doing this, even though we know, and as they say outright in their statement, we're going to lose some stuff that matters. This has been, the decision has sort of been received, certainly in the privacy and civil liberties community, by, aha, you didn't even need it, right? Like you said that this stuff was really, really important to your counterterrorism mission. This proves that you guys were full of it. Wow, I can't believe this, right? I, I think that really doesn't understand what's going on here. Um, and, and I say this without, um, without actually making an underlying comment on whether or not it was a good idea or bad idea to take this step. Um, uh, in part because I, I'm, I'm not sure I've, I've come to an ultimate conclusion and also because I'm missing some of the relevant pieces of information. Um, but that's that, uh, just because NSA is willing to eliminate a program, they're willing to say the costs outweigh the benefits here. Um, that doesn't mean that there weren't benefits, and that doesn't mean those benefits weren't significant and didn't have security, uh, won't have security consequences uh, now that we don't have that information. And essentially, you know, Whenever we we, uh, we should welcome the fact that the IC is, is constantly engaged in this balancing test. We don't want them just to engage in collection just always because more, more, more. We we want this sort of we want them to have a sense of risk management. I mean, they've actually created an office um, with this function now of saying like, when when are we better off accepting the risk instead of just constantly asking for more? If you continually increase the cost of something eventually the costs will outweigh the benefits. And so I view this as, hey, this particular program reached the tipping point. Eh, all right. Like, you know, reasonable minds can differ as to whether or not this was a good outcome or a bad outcome. But the trends here still seem... I find them sort of frankly disturbing um, and, okay, and the reception this is, disturbing. This is what I'm puzzled by. Why is this disturbing? Any of these mechanisms, these surveillance mechanisms, 
are balancing security risks and political risks or civil liberties risks, which become political risks. And what's happened here is that the balance between those two things shifted. We don't know whether that's because, partly because the risk, the security risk calculus shifted. We do know that the political risk calculus shifted. But um, without total transparency in their decision-making process, we don't know. It might be that both parts of the equation changed and not only one. And so I don't know that we can distinguish and say this is a troubling trajectory because the risk calculus matters too. A. B, you know, as you said, it's risk management. Realistically, all of these policies involve risk management. The problem is that our public discourse about them doesn't allow us to talk about that. We simultaneously demand that the government do literally everything it can possibly do to prevent attacks and that they not do so much that we feel imposed on. And as long as we continue, we as a public, to insist on two contradictory things, they're going to have to decide the balance on their own with some pushes and pulls from courts and oversight boards and whatever. And and so that's the nature of the game. This public statement to me sounds, and forgive me for being crude, sounds like a bureaucratic ass covering statement. Like, hey guys, we had to balance some risk. And guess what? There might be, we're not saying there will be, but there might be a security cost to this. So if something happens, don't come back and, and eat us for lunch. That's... That's what they've done. Yeah, I mean, I, like I, I, I think that's not that's a different way of describing essentially the same thing. And so, uh, sure, I, I, uh, there are complex reasons, and and part of it certainly is um, is ass covering. I, I, I more um, welcome that they're having this degree of sort of clarity on their decision making, which is um, pretty rare and pretty new for the agency. Um, that said, uh, <clears throat> yes, I think that this is a, a piece of it. I, I more see that the um, the trend is, um, you know, I, I sort of think of it as like um, uh, like security policy as if you give a mouse a cookie, um, you know, that, that little kid's book where like you give the mouse a cookie and then he asks for a glass of milk and then he sees the fridge and so he wants some pen and paper and then he wants some crayons and then he wants to like, I don't know, it just it goes on from there and it's more and more and more and more. And that is the relationship and the posture that is, has now developed between um, essentially the intelligence community and the civil liberties and privacy community, which is a distinct group that is not representative of the American people because the American people get to set whatever rules they want uh, for the intelligence community. But that we have um, now engaged in, in this place in which um, there's this view that you can always add more. You can always add more transparency. You can always add an additional warrant requirement. You can also always add more surveillance oversight. tools. You can always extend your your reach of intelligence collection just a little bit more if you're given the authority. So I feel like give a mouse a cookie cuts both ways. The intelligence community always looks for more than it's got as well. Sure, sure. The difference is that whenever we're looking at the trend lines for the past five years, they've only moved in one direction. Um, I think we're reaching a point in which we're starting to see important programs, um, programs with real benefits, uh, uh, going by the wayside. Um, I think we put lots and lots of compliance weight. Um, only some of it meaningful, lots of it symbolic. Um, and, uh, 
And the each time there is a concession, even really substantial concessions, they are never viewed as concession. It is never viewed as, okay, this is risk acceptance. There, there's some degree of loss, but this is it, it immediately the clock resets to you didn't need this in the first place. I, I just, I, I don't know where it ends, and and especially with sort of 702 reauthorization on the horizon, um, a place in which, you know, frankly, I think it would be catastrophic to the United States if we went down on on, on all of 702 collection. And I think that's not a um, – that possibility is uh, larger than zero at the moment, um, which is frightening. Uh that something about the way we are having this conversation, something about the way these these changes are being received, um, I, I do not see that trend towards let's put more and more and more uh, into the sort of this compliance machine without being thoughtful about it, without being thoughtful about the operational consequences. Um, I, I don't see us ending up in a good place. Which, <clears throat> given the present control of both branches of government, is kind of a surprising outcome. Yeah, I mean, it's it's frankly, it's shocking to think that there's a Republican majority in the House and Senate and a Republican White House. We're saying, I, I don't know if 702 is going to be reauthorized, guys. That's a real question. I mean, that's just like, that's, it's it's mind boggling to think Kevin about Nunes like and how the EFF all... standing arm yeah, in arm. That's at the your barricade. band name, man. Oh, we're going to get to the band name. <laughs> You're not going to like it. But let's move on to object lessons before we get there. You've actually got my object lesson on your phone, which is our um, glamorous, glamorous photo of uh, me and Susan and Tamara at the Samantha B. Not the White House Correspondence Party. And uh, I will just say that you look fine in a tuxedo. Thank you. you do you clean up thank nice, you. Thank man. you. You guys looked great in your well, – when you were wearing purple and you were wearing fuchsia. Tammy, like, matched the carpet. The purple carpet. I, it was it looked like entirely like, coincidental. It was your party. Yeah, it, was it was my party, actually. It was, it was great, yeah. We, had, we were, like, representing with rational security in there. And um, special shout-out to Pat King, supervising producer for Full Frontal with Samantha B, who uh, threw a hell of a party, man. Threw a hell of a party, awesome. just for us, Aww. just for us and two thousand of our closest friends. <laughs> no, it was great. It was uh, really fun, and it was great to. Uh, we did all clean up well, and we had a nice time. And actually, and, what and we raised money for Committee to Protect. Journalists. That's right. Committee to Protect mm-hmm. Journalists was the uh, the beneficiary of uh, of uh, all the money and the, uh, the at, at a great party. Uh, and the actual White House Correspondence Dinner was not that bad either. I went to the dinner, uh, sat next to John Brennan and his lovely wife, Kathy. What, Ron White was at our table. That wasn't awkward at all. Um, <laughs> and, uh, they're they're going to be allies now, too. Yeah. Just wait and see. We're dog and cat are friends. Um, <laughs> who's the dog and who's the cat? They can decide for themselves. Don't delve too deeply It's, it's frog and toad. Frog and toad. <laughs> whatever. Um, but no, actual dinner was uh, pretty good. And, uh, you know, it, it was actually just a night to celebrate uh, journalists, too. And I didn't mind that there weren't that many celebrities there. Including a certain one. It You're a swilling fun. journalist. Yeah. What an awesome crowd. Or just cheap wine. You know, <laughs> the other shit, dress up and feel very fancy. So I felt so fancy. I did too, yes. Uh, who else has an object? I, I have an object lesson yeah. this week. Um, since Ben is not here, I will present it for the both of us. Um, so we, both Ben and I, had the. Very exciting experience of helping one Jane Chong put together what I will say is a truly stupendous resource page on the Russia connection over the past few days. It is truly nuts. It is still in the beginning stages, so there more will be added. Um, But it is basically her Jane's rundown of 
all the hard facts that we have about connections between the Trump camp and Russia and Russian interference in the election organized by subject matter um, and then by timeline. It is totally bananas. It is incredibly useful. I have no idea how Jane put something so... Um, Serial killer obsessive. Yes, yeah. in such a short amount of time. Oh, yeah, no, it's, That's it, a compliment, it Jane, if you're and, listening. Uh, <clears throat> impressive <laughs> and is bookmarked for me. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so you can find it on Lawfare under our special features menu. Um, I would highly recommend that you go look at it because for me, I've been thinking a lot recently about disinformation and how it's sort of propagated on Twitter, specifically on the internet more generally, and how the question of the Russia connection is sort of uniquely well suited to it at this point in time in social media and the sort of ambiguous, inchoate nature of the connections itself. And I think this page that Jane has put together and on which Ben and I sort of offered an assist is a really useful way of cutting through the smoke. Um, so yeah so go jane go jane it is awesome serial killer obsessive <laughs> but in a good way <laughs> Don't get on jane, that's, that's your letter of recommendation <laughs> um so my object lesson is a picture it is a picture of a toilet mm-hmm. now not any toilet the location of this toilet is critical because it is in a bathroom instead well, of one hopes it, well, you say that, um, but the location of this toilet previous for the past six and a half weeks has been in the middle of my bedroom <laughs> because we have been going through the world's most ridiculous bathroom renovation. Oh, no. And my object lesson is the toilet where it belongs in a finished bathroom. And Ben and Quinta, who uh, I know will be heartbroken at not being able to hear me come in and give them very detailed updates uh. about my ongoing construction saga. I, I know their hearts are breaking. Um, I'm, I'm just devastated. They're just dying to hear me complain about this Sounds a little like bit a more. crappy experience. But oh, <laughs> oh, so cheap. <laughs> Our national nightmare is over. You can there's Flush once again security <laughs> done. <laughs> secure. <laughs> well, we're happy for you, and Thank remind you. me never to use your contractor. You, use your toilet in peace. Yes. So sh- shout out to my coworkers. <laughs> <laughs> Very patient. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Download the podcast at Stitcher, iTunes, wherever you do. Please leave a six or seven star review. They have that, right? Eleven is you There's like a 46 star review function. Yeah, there's a button for that. Like, right, do the five-star review and then, like, do star emojis in the review comments mm-hmm. yeah. and then post another one doing the same thing, you know, mm-hmm. you know the troll. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. We're everywhere. Uh, our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jim Comey and Barely Legal Upstream Collection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Well done. Right? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. No, of course our music is <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Did you think someone dared him to say, like, how many times can you say the word porn in your no. testimony? And he was like, I, I bet I can do I it three times. I think he times. was just really tired and punchy. That's my he made He made lots of jokes. He made jokes about his dentist. He probably mm-hmm. hadn't slept in days. Yeah, Jim Comey's over it, man. He's over it. <laughs> YOLO. Of course, our music was performed by Sophia Yan, who maybe for the last time, actually, after this podcast, we're going to get like, we're going to earn that E today. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Sophia, <laughs> as always, for sticking with us. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis, Susan Hennessy, and Quinta Jurassic, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>